Welcome to Anything Goes, the best geek and pop culture show broadcast in Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney, and we're back. We're continuing the series about The Dark Knight Returns, the book, breaking down into four parts. No, I did not forget about this series. It was just things got in the way, as life does, and so we're finally getting back to the series. And like I had on the first episode, I had Scott from the Suicide Squad cast as my guest, and he's back on this episode. Welcome back, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> This this is like the most badass Batman gets in this book. So I'm just saying, this is a great... The Dark Knight Triumphant. I love uh, the fact that that's actually the name of the issue. Yeah, because, yeah. because like with that title, The Dark Knight Triumphant, because this is his highest high that he gets as a personal... Uh, as a personal gains as Batman. Oh, and it's and it's just a it's just a swirling down the toilet for the next two issues. So it's like we have Batman enjoy this one. This is the best you're gonna get. Exactly, and like we said, we're talking about uh, Dark Knight Returns Book Two, Dark Knight Triumphant. So let's jump into that right now. <laughs> So the book opens up, and this is like the like one I guess part of like Gordon's routine of like how he's kind of going home. Like this is like his walk home every night, but he's reminiscing on the fact of how the city is so it's taken so much from it, and it's left so many lingering memories. Of like how he looks at this one uh, doorways there, all I can imagine is seventy-two corpses that have been there or in places like that around the city, and he comes face to face with a mutant and. I find it just a really telling scene, like how, despite the fact of his age and his, like all the violence he's seen, he's still willing to do what's necessary for him to survive. He's not willing to lay down just yet. Well, and the mutants got like I, I'm looking at the barrel. This thing's like an assault. This thing's like a semi-automatic rifle. Like yes, I, I've and he pulls out his you know hand cannon, which I'm sure is like a. Is that like a Smith & Wesson 45 he's carrying or something? It, it a, might be the 44 because it looks very much like Dirty Harry's weapon. Just oh, like it's got to be Dirty. No, you're right. It's got to be Dirty Harry's gun. Like, that's what Frank Miller would give Jim Gordon. Exactly. Oh. Oh, and then, of course, you know, there's that great line with the newscaster. You know, first it's got the, the battling petitions of the Council of Mothers uh, wanting to have Batman arrested, and then the Victims' Rights Task Force wanting to have Batman commended, and it's just it, once again that 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 smoldering sarcasm and and parody that Frank Miller laces throughout this entire graphic novel of just lampooning everyone, and it just continues along with that that pissant little mare that you just you just want to. Pop his fat little head because he's because he's so like like he's he's indecisive up until like the very end he's indecisive on everything that's coming uh, that he has to make a decision on. Oh, and, and, and the whole point is oh please don't ask me a question because I'm not going to give you an answer. And then you know and then of course you get Carrie Kelly 
who apparently ordered a Robin costume and spent like all her money to get it, and she and she looks good in it. And then that's when we hear, we, we hear that that great scene of Jim Gordon has you know has been shot and killed. Oh, I'm, I, no, I'm sorry, Jim Gordon has shot and killed a a 17 year old member of the mutant gang. And then I think it's kind of telling that then the news, the way the news reports it, they immediately start vilifying Gordon for the self-defense. Yeah, even like the, the point that when the reporter asks Gordon the question on live TV, his, resp- his look on his face says it all. And it's just like, seriously, like, I, because of all the things I've done for the city, and yet I defend myself. And I get someone ever- with a probably a semi or fully automatic rifle. Because just, we later he, find out that they're getting, they are getting military, military grade weapons. Like the mutants are armed to the teeth, and he's like, "I shot the guy with my revolver." What did you expect? And and that look just, and that look on his face just says, "Screw you, screw you," and your questions. It is ridiculous, and it's just like, it's like, how do you feel? Like, how do you think he feels? I mean, yes, he was in self defense, but he just killed a child. Yes. He, Gordon, would feel like crap for that. And it's just like, oh, God. But but once again, that's the whole point. And then, of course, we jump to the shadowy, you know, video of the mutant leader, you know, saying just, you know, the, I will eat the, his heart. I will drink the blood in the streets. I mean, just the, blah. You know, the, the, and, and it was like it's it's the funny thing that sometimes the newscasters like, oh yeah, we can't put this on air, but then they put these video messages from the mutant leader on air. It's like, oh, we have no problem putting this on the air for public consumption. And it's something that like Frank Miller would repeat again in RoboCop Two, because because um, Kane, the leader of like the the crime wave that's being sponsored or being funded by nuke the drug that he's peddling he would make kind of these statements and video calls and like say like and say like stating his intentions of what he's going to do to old detroit yeah frank miller definitely has um if you're talking about like the the mid to late 80s and you know which is probably about the time that he wrote robocop 2 before the studio took it away from him you know he definitely had his opinions about the way that the news was going in the 80s and I'm sure he has some of the same opinions now, to be honest with you. Oh, for sure. I mean, like, it, like it's either, like, his opinions have, like, become more extreme or he's mellowed out in his old age. It's just depending on how he is as a person. But um, as we find out that we had the questions of, like, of Gordon now have to, uh, he's going to leave office. And we still do not know who's his replacement yet. Who's going to be the new police commissioner of Gotham, the first one in decades. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, you know, they go back to that Weasley little mayor, and he's like, I'm still pulling opinions. I'm still pulling opinions. Yeah, because you don't have the balls to actually make a decision on your own of no. who's the next commissioner of police. Yeah. It's the joke from A Nightmare Before Christmas, like, when the, the mayor goes to Jack after, the day after Halloween to talk about plans for the following Halloween. It's like, and he starts to freak out when Jack does not answer the door. Like, please, I'm only elected official. I can't make decisions by myself. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Uh. Man, and then, of course, we get the news that the, I'm sorry, the heir to the Ridley chewing gum fortune. On oh my serious, seriously, this is this is this is the fortune. You know, we have the kid of a chewing gum billionaire or something like. 
But of course, then that leads to that wonderful scene that everyone loves to debate in The Dark Knight Returns, which is, you know, Batman attacks this trio of mutants who have kidnapped a kid. He disarms one, convinces the one with like the M60 to riddle the other guy with bullets, and then comes smashing through the wall to grab the guy with a big-ass gun. And I I am still, to this day, after I don't know how many years of reading this book, this scene where he pulls the trigger, and he only pulls it once, because if you look at the art, only one shell casing is being ejected from that big-ass gun. And it's like, what happened? Because we only get, like, one panel to, to try to decide, okay, what did Batman just do with this mutant? who was holding this kid and threatening to shoot this kid. Yeah. And go on. I you know I you know I I remember it differently every time I read it. And then when I look at it it's like, okay, what does the panel actually show me? The mutants in black and white and gray. The kid is in color. Which artistically would suggest to me that the mutant is dead. You know, I, I would feel like artistically they're trying to say something. Because I see blood splattered on the wall behind the mutant. I see a hole in the wall where the bullet would have gone. But I'm looking at the mutant. And there's no bullet holes in the mutant. And so, I think a lot of us tend to th have this memory of, oh, Batman totally shot the mutant in the head. But there's no bullet wound in the head. So, I'm... I'm saying that this is a little bit more open to interpretation than I think I ever remembered it being. And once again, it's amazing how every time I go back and read this book, I see something different every time. Which is definitely seems the question, like, it's intentionally vague on Miller's behalf. And you wonder why he would do that. And if he didn't, if he didn't want to make a hardline decision, I, I asked, like, then why write yourself into this kind of corner? And... Because you could argue, like, he was shot the mutant in the shoulder and that incapacitated the person because the, the blood and the bullet wound could be a result of being shot, like, in the shoulder. And the mutant may have lived because later on, the Batman has a chance to kill the mutant leader and says, I can do it. But that would mean crossing a line I made a promise to myself that I did 30 years ago that I would not do. And so it calls into the ethical question of his actions here. And... Two things. One, we have Batman coming through the wall, which is iconic, which RoboCop did in the first one, which Frank Miller did not have any uh, interactions with, but definitely seems that uh, Michael Miner and the, the other writer, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, were definitely fans of of Frank Miller and Dark Knight Returns, because RoboCop does that in a hostage situation, saving the mayor of Detroit. And of course, then we have in Batman v Superman of this precise, precise scenario of Ben Affleck coming through the wall to save uh, Mar Martha Kent. But and I, I kind of like it in BBS a little bit more, where at least delivering the lines when KG Beats is saying, I "I'll kill her, believe me, I'll do it," and Batman says, "I believe you." Then he pulls the trigger. I prefer that more than him shooting and then Batman saying, "I believe you" after saving the kid. Oh, I, oh, I agree, and the fact that in I'm sorry, if you're going to do the KGBs, Tim, come on, let's do it right. It's, uh, I'll kill her, believe me, I'll do it. I believe you. 
And then, and then, and then once again, to the credit of Batman v Superman, he doesn't actually shoot KG Beast. He shoots the tank of the flamethrower. It's KG Beast's dumbass fault for keeping the trigger on this flamethrower. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to give Batman credit there. He didn't shoot KG Beast. He no. just shot. He just shot the tank. No, but he pulls pretty much like a jigsaw from Saw right there. Like I didn't kill. I've never killed anybody. I just put them in a possible scenario to get out of without being hurt. I'm. I don't. I'm, I'm just saying. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna give Bat. I, I, I'm gonna give Bat Flex some rope. That's all I'm gonna say. Exactly. Know? But but I do. But I agree with you. I do. It's weird. Once again, it's it's one of those things like you remember the book differently after you've read it than like when you're actually reading it. Because if you look at the way that it's it's um, boarded out here, he shoots the gun, the mutant goes down, he comforts the kid, and then says, I believe you. And I agree with you. In Batman v Superman, I do prefer the... I believe you before he pulls the trigger because it's a little bit more badass. It's a little bit more. I, I'm going to be a little sarcastic to your face, to you know, to the to the dumbass thing you just said because now you you have this coming kind of response. I I never thought about it that way because I never remembered it that way until you know you said it. Right. I mean, it's his. He pretty much he has a one liner right there. Well, when saying that to KG Beast. Right, which it's a little bit more delayed. But I guess if you think about it, in the comic panel, the I believe you is the one-liner that ends the Batman scene because then we go back to the TV, then we go back to like the half a page of TV screens. So if you had to think about the layout of the comic page, Frank Miller was putting a button on the Batman scene to transition into uh, the uh, the the media, which if you think about it, like this is on the page, I can understand. We might prefer the way the movie does it, but then once again we get into that conversation of uh, how the how something works on the page as opposed to how something works in a live action adaptation. Right, and amongst us, the the debates we have we have man on the street interviews, including somebody wearing Joyal Forge glasses. At one point, I'm just like, like, what are the point of those glasses? Like, those are so thin they can't be protecting your eyes whatsoever. Oh, it, it doesn't matter. It's it's all it's all stupid future stuff. Like that's the whole point. This this future is screwed up, Tim. This feature is massively screwed up. But then, of course, this is when we get into a, you know, we get to see Lana. You know, Lana comes back to basically show her defense of Batman. You get Dr. Walper again, that slimy little bastard. You know, and I love his dialogue because you're, you read what he says about why he thinks Batman is so bad for society. And you're just reading his dialogue going, this is a whole bunch of psychobabble bullshit. I mean, oh, yeah, he's talking around the issue. Oh, no, yeah. He's not actually answering the question, but that's what Dr. Wolpert does. He doesn't answer the question, but then tries to sound like he's super damn smart the whole time. Right, and does not take responsibility for the actions of Harvey Dent, whose was his responsibility when he released him on the public. Yes, exactly. But once again, he wants to blame Batman. 
You know, he he can't he cannot take his responsibility because that would go against his whole, um, you know, sort of. Oh, we just need to love them and let them have understanding, and then we can release them from Arkham. You know, the, you know the idea that it's no longer the Arkham Asylum for the criminally insane. It's I, I, the. I it, wonder, it, it, go go ahead. No, no. I wonder if it's like when Geraldo was exposing the mental institutions. Um, actions or like the conditions for patients in the 80s and when they were all released on society i wonder if that happened before this book was published or not Ooh, that is a that is a very interesting question um i, I might have to do a little internet searching while we continue talking because yeah it sound it that totally sounds like something that frank miller would be like seriously <laughs> you know, I, I I could see him like just totally going. This is the most dumbass idea I have ever heard. Because I have the I uh, now my neighborhood has the cast of One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest walking up and down my streets, and most of them are not nice. Like Chief, everybody's kind of it, it would somebody like a lot of them were like you would like it's like the joke from the simpsons like like I stay here while i deal with this raving derelict i mean like that's how like some of them were kind of perceived and and not saying that all of them were and some of them were victims of the the conditions they were in but definitely seems like geraldo may have acted a little too like i guess uh it was 1972 oh wow you know? yeah so it was like it was almost 15 years before this book came out Mm-hmm. Possible. So, possible. Maybe that was enough time for people to start seeing, you know, it's like the idea of, yes, th- this was atrocious conditions, but that doesn't mean, you know, let's just shut everything down and let them all go. You know, and, you know, it, it's shut them down instead of trying to clean them up. And maybe that's what Frank was trying to say. I don't know. That would be a very interesting question to ask Frank. If someone ever wanted to talk about, so Frank, what, were you, what was your inspiration for this? What were you trying to say right here? Right. And then we have uh, Chuck uh, Chuck Brick, the White House representative, as being spoken about uh, the Batman situation. Which he doesn't, once again, he doesn't really say anything either. It's like, his whole point is, he, he, he wants to say the president has no comment. Without actually saying that. So kind of like what Walper does, he just kind of talks around the issue. And the only one who's willing to actually say something is Lana. She's just like, screw you guys. Batman's awesome and we need him. And that's and she's the one who's called out on the carpet saying, you haven't actually answered my question. And it's like, no, actually, she she has. She actually did. And the And it's just like... And once again, you can see where Frank is trying to say the media has this certain perception that it's pushing, and it will do whatever it can to push this agenda. Which, once again, is this great commentary about about uh, new uh, news with agendas and television news that challenges only certain people, but then let others completely off the hook. And I and once again. The man – it's either the man was a visionary or there were problems in the 80s and they just haven't gone away. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those books that you can still read today and you're like, damn, we're still having the same problems. This exactly. Is, this is, it's like, oh my god, really? It's almost more depressing to think that I'm reading a book from 1986 and I'm still seeing the same problems, you know, over 30 years later. Right. 
And then another famous moment of the book is when we, the one, the mutant, one of the three mutants is is uh, being interrogated by Batman, and little do we know where this mutant is, and then we find out he's being hung off the side of a building, and it's probably my possibly my favorite line from the entire book. It was tough work carrying 220 pounds of sociopaths to the top of the Gotham Towers, the highest spot in the city. The scream alone was worth it. I know. But I also love on the page before that when you have like nine panels of just black with the dialogue. And then the next three panels reveals to you that the black is the POV of the mutant and it's his fingers moving out of the way to reveal just where the hell he is. I th- I think that is just, oh, what a wonderful use of point of view and perspective to, like, you think it's just a black panel and you realize, no, it's black for a reason. I love that. Because hey, I love the fact that like, the mutant thinks he has the bargaining chips here and feels so confident, like, all right, I'll tell you what I want. Just let me walk. No jail time, no police, nothing. I'll tell you everything he needs to know. And, the, and he's completely unaware of the situation he's in at that moment. So Batman, <laughs> it's like you—you you really don't know what you really have nothing to go on right now, and it's just like I'm going to show you. And then, of course, you know, this whole time, which is something that we've been—we haven't really talked about because it's more sort of like little interludes in between all these major beats—is Carrie Kelly basically her first night out as Robin, kind of doing like running across rooftops and, you know, making jumps and missing and, like, barely making legends or, like, walking up to a to a con man on the street doing a, a card game and putting a firecracker in his pocket. You know, so she, she hasn't quite become the hero yet. She's just kind of having a little bit of fun right now. And so we're – the cool thing as a reader is that – you see Batman going in a direction, and so you're wondering where Carrie Kelly is going in her direction. Right, and you just hope as a reader going through this for the first time that they'll probably meet up and their stories will collide at some point. Yeah. I was weird. I was reading this page. I always remember that there was always those random acts of mutant violence through the first two books, but it was still, you know, the scene where the with the waitress who's on her way home on the subway and then, you know, the mutants steal this art kit that she bought for her son and she looks into her purse at the end after they shove her off the train and then the next panel is just woman explodes in subway, film at 11. And you just realize and but I think it's an interesting juxtaposition because you get this personal story. You get to know this character over the course of one page who then gets blown up at the end. And then you see the media's reaction to it, which is just woman explodes, film at 11. And like completely impersonal, hot take, you know, the the 80s television news version of clickbait where you just spin a page actually kind of learning to care about this woman before she dies. And I think it's so incredible that that Miller was able to actually make you connect with a character that literally you only knew for 12 panels that makes you kind of feel something when she dies at the end of the page. And I think this might be my favorite st- part, maybe my favorite page in the entire story, all four bo- books com- in, and collected because I, 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 for several reasons. A, 
my mom was a waitress for a long time, so uh, working very hard in order to like to help support the family, like that, I just kind of relate to in a personal level, and uh, the fact that like she's like she's she's being incredibly selfless here like do, working herself to the bone in order to provide for her kids and something that's it's very commendable and you want the best for her and i remember when we were first talking about before we recorded our first episode i was actually going to into the city to uh buy my camera which i eventually did I'm, and i'm riding on one of the older trains and it's kind of like has been up like it, this thing was new maybe 25, 30 years ago. And so the lights flicker on and off every few seconds. And so I'm going to the city at nighttime, into New York City at nighttime. The lights flickering on and off. And this is the panel I'm reading. I got to the, bo- I got to the bottom of the page. I just, kind of stu- I just kind of looked around the car. I'm like, is there anybody else that's kind of looking nefarious right now? Because this is just a very uncomfortable story to read while taking a train into the city. Oh, man. Well, and, of course, that's what in, – in what Frank Miller is – you know, he does in Dark Knight Returns and he really does it in Batman Year One. I mean, what he is lampooning here is 70s New York. I mean, like, he he had really – I mean, apparently he taught – there's a story about being mugged in New York and, like, that kind of just inspired his his whole take of what Gotham City was, was that just crime-ridden era of New York at the time. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely more evident in year one because it's a contemporary piece, right? Like it's taking place in the the present day, but yet Dark Knight Returns it's in that future, but the future could be any time. I mean, so much so that like when they did the animated movie, the soundtrack is totally like eighty synth. Like it's the eighties is the future. And, you know, it's even a synthesizer soundtrack, which I think is awesome. Oh, yeah. I mean, synth- not- <laughs> Christopher Drake did a great job. Total tangent talking about the movie instead of the book. But still, awesome soundtrack. It's in, like, my top ten scores of all time, all movies included, that score. I love that score. Oh, man. One of these days we'll have to talk about the movie, too. Uh, but, yeah, but, yeah, the... Oh man, I remember the next page where it's a where it's a full splash page. I remember this image, like from when I was seven. And I, you know, I told you on the on the last episode that I was on about the the unfortunateness of a seven year old reading this book. And <laughs> this image of the of the general draped in the American flag, you know, I don't even think as a seven year old I processed the fact that he's holding a smoking gun. Like, I don't even think that, like, as a seven-year-old, I did not comprehend what was going on on this page. And it wasn't until I older that I was like, oh, oh, he was, he was shipping, he was, he was reallocating weapons to the mutants, and he decided to, uh, to shoot himself instead of, you know, get taken in. You know, very much kind of like the Harry Carey, you know, you know, restore your honor suicide of like maybe more like a Asian culture kind of thing. It was, it was, it's amazing how once again, so much is communicated on just one page. And, and he also, and Batman also says in his internal monologue, I almost asked him why, like, I didn't even ask him why he was doing it. I just kind of, you know, didn't really care at the time. 
I think one of the reasons why that this, other than the fact that it's a splash page in a story that if it has numerous panels per page, it's also the fact that it's the colors that pop because you, much like Watchmen, like these are not the primary colors of a comic book, and the the the, the art for it, the the inks of it is just like all right, or and it's just like all right, it's very muted, it's very desaturated, and it's it's few and far between when something really pops and this. The splash page is one of them that does. Right, because Lynn Verily is mainly using like watercolors through most of the through most of the book. So when you get to a page like this that has a ton of Klaus Jansen inks, and then Lynn Verily like uses a little bit more like traditional coloring on the page. It you're right. You go from this washed out watercolor to bam. Four panel color. Let's go for it. It it really it, it shocks the system when you flip the page and you see it. Oh yeah, because it this that page has more in line of like I guess the Justice the Justice League book that was going on at the time. I think it was still the Detroit era. I don't think it was JLI yet. Like that has more in common with that than it does with the rest of the piece of of, of the Dark Knight Returns. Oh, absolutely. Um, and then of course you know we. I love the fact that it's like half a page later, we actually get the information about why the general was uh, reallocating the weapons to the mutants. But once again, I, I love that as a reader, you know, since I love reading books, and very much, I think I even said it in the last episode I was on, this, this graphic novel reads more like a novel, and... It's like a blink if you miss it. Like, if you're not paying attention on the next page, you miss the information where they actually tell you why he was a traitor. Like, why he was rea- why he was selling weapons to the mutants. And it's also a little bit of stinging Miller commentary. Like, in just two little panels. And it's like, oh, said that, moving on. I mean, this book, I mean... Book two, I'm looking at this right here, it's like over 50 pages. Like one issue is over 50 pages. But it just moves. All of the Dark Knight Returns. Just, it's amazing how much story gets packed because it moves so quickly. You have to process information at an incredible rate if you're trying to catch everything on the page. Yeah, and the fact that you have like, it's not like it's like a wordless book either. There's a there's a lot of dialogue going on throughout it, but yet it is like it's almost, it's very succinct in its intentions for each line of dialogue that's being presented to the audience. It's it's one of those benefits of having a book when you have a writer and artist who you would say the writer part because we've all read writer artist books that they're really an artist and they're writing and you can tell that writing is not necessarily their forte and i feel like this is a book that really shows how gifted miller is as a writer say what you want to say about his art you know some people love his art some people hate his art some people are meh on his art and but this is a book that really shows you the man can rock it as a writer and how he does layouts and how he chooses to place the information on a page. Yeah, I mean, like, you could, like, 
on the opposite end of that spectrum, you have Todd McFarlane, fantastic artist, probably not the best writer in the world. Yeah. I mean, well, but I loved his Spider-Man, so I'm, I'm a little conflicted there. I'll have to go back and, and see what I think. But, yeah, you know, you got that or – sorry to throw the guy on the bus, but you know, like Neil Adams' books lately. It's like, Neil, no, you're an artist. You're not a writer. I'm just, just, yeah. just nah. Yeah, we're not going to go there. I just know that I, I made a few unfortunate purchasing decisions, and I've learned my lesson. Moving on. <laughs> this, yeah. this isn't this isn't trash artist episode. No, uh, no. But it's really interesting because once again, you see the paths of Batman and Carrie Kelly continuing to to merge. Because Carrie Kelly hears about the fact there's going to be this giant uh, mutant gathering at the dump. And so she's already on she's already on that path because she stows away in a car to the dump for this meeting. And Batman's still tracking down the the supply chain of all the military weapons that this general has funneled to the mutants. Yes, and then we finally, as well as like a third storyline going on about the mayor considering the options of who should be the next commissioner while he's still being indecisive. It's like, all right, and tells his underling, all right, you choose the next uh, commissioner. And, and, of course, the underling has already figured out who he would pick. And, and also, if you read the dialogue, it's this, once again, this stinging commentary of, we do, we're not picking the person who's best for the job. We're picking the person who's going to look good in the job. What, who can we pick that's going to make us look good for picking them? Not necessarily, are they the best choice for police commissioner? Oh, no, it's a total, it's a total public relations decision on their behalf. And you can't argue a lot of decisions made by politicians could fall under there. And it, but decisions like that happen every single day, more often than we'd like to admit. But it definitely seems like, all right, fine. I, like that Miller was not pussyfooting around that he was going to make a statement with this storyline that's going on. Right. Once someone else made the decision, it was really easy for him to go public when somebody else said, pick this person. And he just went, okay. And then this is where we get Captain Ellen Yindel introduced into the book, which... I have to admit, I think it would. I think I can't remember the fact that she gets introduced kind of late in the book. It's like we're, we're, I mean, how far are we? We're about, we're not quite halfway through book two. But I just, because of how much she shows up in book three and book four, I've always thought of Commissioner Yindel as like a giant part of this book. Like you kind of forget how long Gordon does actually stick around as commissioner. Yeah, I mean, like, we have the introduction of her, we have the decision made on her behalf, they're saying, oh, no, I am, my first act of business is assigning an arrest warrant for the Batman, and the only thing that's, the only other big part of her storyline within the confines of this book specifically is that she hears the story of, that Gordon kind of justifies it, like, doing what is necessary in order to win the war, and that means dirtying your hands a little bit in a, in a moral sense when it comes to uh, law and order. Right. You know, to achieve order, maybe 
you have to do a little bit less of the law. You know, it's 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 that it's that interesting balancing act that I think even it's almost like the first time Frank Miller. I think like Frank. What was so groundbreaking about the Dark Knight Returns is Frank Miller really points out how shady it is for Batman to be operating. Like it's like, do we really realize how how morally gray this character is? Like he's he's a dude with mental problems who is breaking the law and you no. Know, Instituting justice, which I think is also telling because in the 1970s is when you had, you know, that huge string of vigilante movies, you know, like, de- you know, the Death Wish movies. And, you know, that whole idea of vigilante justice made a big splash in the films. And I think Frank Miller took that mentality and going, this is what Batman is. Doesn't anybody have a problem with that? And he's, I think Frank Miller's even said that in interviews, is that his whole point about writing this book was pointing out, this dude is crazy. This dude is loco. (laughs) What do you think? Why do we think this is a good idea? Right. And it's something even like when it's an idea that's even brought up to an extent in Gotham Central of, from the police, police department's point of view, like... If we call him, we are admitting defeat, that we cannot do this without him. And we do not want to sanction the actions of a vigilante within the confines of our city because we are still capable men and women doing our due diligence to stop crime. Yeah. And so it's just it's, – it's a – I feel like – I mean I've read a lot of like Bronze Age Batman and also some very silly Silver Age Batman. I mean – some people considered the issue, which is why in the Silver Age they made him like a, you know, in the Adam West TV show, they are duly deputized members of the Gotham City Police Force. You know, and I don't, and I, but I don't know if someone actually in a book ever really decided to hang a lantern on it and say, this dude crazy. What, what are we, what are we doing? And, and, and I guess Frank Miller maybe was just the first one that really decided to shine a light on it and go, this is this is nuts. What? Why do we think this guy is a hero? But then I think Miller answers his own question as the way he writes the book. He goes, "This is why he's a hero. This is why he is necessary." Yeah, and it definitely seems why Batman and Robin got badges in the comics was that was a result of the comics code, and and so it's like, all right, we need to show that they're upright standing citizens and they are. They work within the confines of the law. That's why they got badges. That's why you saw Batman and Robin walking down the street with cops in the daylight and nobody batting an eye at the fact that, yes, there's Batman and Robin uh, commiserating with uh, the the police. But and the reason why Batman is so important is because we finally meet the mutant leader and his army. Oh, my goodness. The... Art and the art in this scene, and and the, I think what gets me about this scene is the colors, because there's so there's almost no color. Like there's like one color or two color. It's it it's like someone just decided to wash the whole scene, and it's it's so interesting, especially when you consider that this entire scene is taking place in a dump. Yeah, and it's definitely true. It helps the audience in a psychological level identify what the kind of environment they're in. Yeah. Cause it's all, and it's gray like, all right, it makes you feel br- uncomfortable. 
Yeah, it's all grays and browns and beiges, and it's just... And, of course, this is also when we get the reveal of that. That that sweet, that sweet, sweet Batmobile. <laughs> As I like to refer to it, the tank. Yeah. Oh, I, I enjoy this Batmobile. I really do enjoy it. I don't know. I think there's some people who don't, but I do enjoy this behemoth of a Batmobile. It is. It's fit. It, it's fitting for this story. If you drop this in, like Batman R.I.P., you, some readers would be like, "Okay, this is a little overkill or, or unnecessary." Yeah, and it's interesting because if you read the dialogue, you realize that he developed it like five years before he retired. Like, apparently there were some really nasty riots. Basically, this was a riot buster. Like, the, the, you know, because the fact that I, just, I still love that line. He's Because fi- this is another time that, like, some Batman fans have a massive issue with this this scene in the book. Because he is just blown away with guns on this Batmobile. But then there's that wonderful... There's just there's those two little... Those two little boxes, rubber bullets, honest, and I love it. It's 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 like I just waved my hand over this and made it all okay. <laughs> I, I wonder if that was an editorial thing to put that. Like Frank, you have to put that in. Oh no, I think I. You know what? Because of the, some of the other stuff, I no actually, I know there wasn't a lot of editorial on this because part of Frank Miller's deal. Uh, to write Dark Knight Returns, basically how they were able, how DC was able to grab him from Marvel from his highly successful Daredevil run was basically him saying, I get to write this book and I get to write it my way. I mean, he basically demanded full creative control over this book as part of his contract to jump ship from Marvel and come to DC. So I think that was all part of Frank's little humor of I'm going to have Batman blowing away people with guns, but then I'm going to wave a little hand over it and go rubber bullets. Honest. (laughs) And and like you're saying about the tank, like the, the, the bat tank pretty much was meant for riots. There is a story called Batman, the cult where yes, which I have not read yet. Oh, it is so good. And okay. So a lot of like how dark, um, the Dark Knight Rises took a lot from uh, Dark Knight Returns, uh, No Man's Land, and Batman the Cult. I think they could have taken more from the cult because I think this, that story is fantastic. And at one point... Gotham it's a Jim Chief, Starlin book, isn't it? I Didn't believe you... so. Yeah, okay. At, at one point where Batman and Robin, Jason Todd Robin, post-crisis, are in the tank, uh, in this kind of Batman tank, ridding the streets of this homeless army... By shooting rocket launchers and tranquilizers and darts, and and it's definitely and it's like kind of the same thing. Like it's the the tanks being hit with bazookas, Molotov cocktails, and everything's just bouncing off it. And even though I think that came out after this, I'm pretty sure that was '88 that was published. Yes, that 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 is an that is a post Dark Knight Returns. Uh, that's a post Dark Knight Returns book. Absolutely, you could argue like. Starling kind of read this and was like, you know what? I think we can kind of like work that in, like reverse continuity pretty much. Oh, everyone has done that with Frank. Every, people go, 
people, I mean, Dark Knight Returns was such a big flipping deal. Everyone was like, what can we use? To, to, to the point that, like, you know, Scott Snyder and his Batman stuff is like, I'm going to take a little bit of Frank, a little bit of animated series, put it in a blender, there's my Batman. It's, right. It's like, yeah, why not? Especially when, you know, the the tank is just one of those iconic things that's like, when you see the Bat tank, you go, Dark Knight Returns. Everyone, anyone who's a Batman fan goes, yep, that's where that came from. Even the Tumblr to a certain extent. Yeah, the Tumblr, the Tumblr definitely, especially with the with the wheels on it, very much like the you know the tank tread on this thing. I, I definitely thought the Tumblr had some bat tank influences from it, and I love the way that Frank draws the cockpit of this Batmobile because it feels so claustrophobic because all the panels and all the technology it's just blackness around Batman to where the only color in the cockpit is a washed out Batman uh, being illuminated what looks like being illuminated by all the screens in the cockpit oh yeah like he's like he's in his own cave pretty much for this oh yes and there's just a little and there's just a little homoeroticism going on here as he's kind of admiring the mutant leader because he's kind of admitting that this 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 man is just like physically physically just perfection and he is looking at this going this is one beef of a man I don't know how I'm going to take this on, but that's almost kind of like his challenge of, I have to dominate this man to prove that I still am the Batman. I must dominate him. And it's, it leads to a brutal fight because I'm spoiler alert. He gets his ass handed to him. Oh yeah. And and the fact that like Batman is looking for a good death, even though, there's several times in his internal monologue, like, not to pass out, don't go into shock, because he wants to prove himself to be able to beat the mutant and, and to, his own, to prove to the mutant leader as well to himself that he could still do this, that he is still the most feared thing in Gotham City. And I wonder if he did die, would he accept the fact that this would be a good death or not? And I don't think he would, because... You read his internal monologue and he's criticizing his own fighting because the mutant leader is trash-talking him and Batman in his internal monologue is totally admitting, well, he's right. Like like at the bottom of one panel, he goes, you slow man. And, and, and Batman's internal monologue is just saying, he's right. He had all the time in the world. So like Batman is being self-reflective in the middle of a fight. He, but, of course, that's also what leads to him getting his ass kicked because he's taking the time to realize how he's not doing a good job instead of just going for it. Right. And the fact that he's trying to, like, going full force, and he's not, he should be fighting smarter, not harder in this situation. And he's not. He's trying to, he's trying to beat him. He's trying to physically pulverize him and... Batman is too old for that. He's not working this. He's not using strategy. He's trying to use brute force, which is a lesson he learns in this fight. Because 
once again, the only reason he does not die is because Carrie Kelly saves his ass. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, there's two, like, connections to this and The Dark Knight Rises. A, how Tom Hardy's Bane, physique-wise, is very similar to the mutant leader. And two, how the first fight they have, Bane demolishes Christian Bale's Batman because because Bale's Batman tries to go out and use brute strength to stop him, and it does not work. Right, which is very different from the way Bane is done in the comic because the whole point in the comic is that Bane basically sleep deprives Batman and wears him down. And then it really Bane doesn't have to do anything to beat the bat. So you're right. The fight between the mutant leader and Batman more accurately reflects that first Bane Batman fight in Dark Knight Rises. I actually hadn't thought about it that way, but well, there you go, Tim, you give me something else to chew on as I read this book. I thank you. I, I, I like to think that I have a good thought every now and then, and I think I just had one, so I'm proud. I'm gonna go. To, I'm gonna go to sleep tonight feeling so proud. Ding 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 ding. <laughs> you get Dear a diary. gold. <laughs> Tim gets a gold star. Uh, it's kind of like it's kind of like the joke at Family Guy, like like Ringo. We're gonna put your song that you wrote on the fridge. There you go. You should feel proud of yourself. <laughs> um. And then, of course, you know, you get the fact that, you know, Robin has to Robin has to save – Batman saves Robin, Robin saves Batman, which I think is very – I think this help explains why some people could criticize this book and say, so this random girl shows up, and all of a sudden you're willing to trust her, you're willing to take her to the Batcave – you're willing to make her your Robin pretty much immediately. But you've got to realize that Batman's getting his ass handed to him. He's going into shock. As much as he tells himself, don't go into shock, go into shock, he's like, damn it, I'm going into shock. And Carrie Kelly has the has the cojones to, you know, take on the mutant leader with no training. And so they're kind of able to save one another while at the same time, because he's going into shock, he actually thinks that Carrie Kelly somehow is Dick Grayson because she's dressed like Dick Grayson. And he should know better that Dick would be older, but because he's got the crap beat out of him, he's probably concussed. He's going into shock. It's like he's delusional enough to think that maybe this is Dick. Yeah, and he says Dick. He does not say Jason, which is interesting why he makes an immediate association, despite the fact Jason being the more recent Robin in his life. Well, but he was also just talking about Dick and about how Dick was the name was the one who named it the Batmobile. So it's like he, he's already got Dick on the mind, you know, going into this fight. So, you know, that's but, – but, but you're right. We've already established in book one that Jason Todd has existed, and it is implied that Jason Todd has died. And, but, we, but we also know that there is this um, – for some reason, which does not get revealed in this book, that there is a falling out between Batman and Dick Grayson and that Batman and Dick have not talked to each other in a long time. Right. And so the mutant leader is defeated. He's taken to custody. Robin helps Batman into the Batmobile, um, as well as Ronald Reagan, the president. Ronald Reagan, the actor, um, and, and as 
tasked Superman to deal with Batman in Gotham City. But what a wonderful reveal. The fact that it goes from a it goes from a layout of we're outside the White House. It, we zoom in on the flag, the American flag atop the White House, and we know it's the president. Uh, do we even technically, besides the fact that if someone was going to the 80s, they'd probably recognize the way he's talking. We'd figure out it was, it was Reagan. Um, have we even seen, Re- do we see Reagan as president in book one? I'm kind of forgetting right now. I don't think so. Okay. So I think this is so so this is our first time to realize, oh, this book is taking place in a world where Reagan is president. And but we don't know who he's talking to. And then but I love the way that within eight panels the American flag transitions into the House of L crest and you realize that Reagan's talking to Superman about I need your help, but I, I need your help, son, to take care of your friend in Gotham, and which, of course, is just foreshadowing for where the these two are going to collide later on in the books. Yes, and it's the first indication that Superman has become a deliberate puppet of the American government. There's no. If hands or butts about it, that he is literally taking orders from from Reagan at this point. Well, even the last panel where it truly reveals the the House of L crest, where Superman's response to Reagan is "Yes, sir," and Reagan's reply to Superman is "Good boy," like he's the like literally like he's the dog of the United States government. Right, and this obviously starts the trend. That people think that Frank Miller hates Superman. Which, which, no, which doesn't. Which I'm going to be very interested when that new DC, when that new, that new DC Black Label comes out and Frank Miller's writing that Superman Year One book. Because I'm really, I mean, and he also wrote him much more heroically in Dark Knight Strikes Again and then especially in Master Race. Uh, But I'd be very interested to see when, like, He's when Miller is writing a solo Superman book, and because he said that he wants to try to dismiss this, dismiss this perception that he must hate Superman. No, it was just like with this story, this is the story he was telling, and that's the the way he felt Superman's character should be for this story. Not saying that that's a blanket statement that Superman must always be like that. Like even Batman between Year One and this. Is very different. Bruce Wayne, yes, he's still very determined to do his, but the Bruce Waynes at Bob's at those two times are very different from each other. Yeah, I, I would almost say the Bruce Wayne in Dark Knight Returns is much more psychotic than the Bruce Wayne you end up seeing in year one. And, and of course, he kind of goes back to being a little bit psychotic in All Star Batman and Robin, but, you know, that's another book entirely. So, but, you know, but it, the point is that Frank Miller does not. Frank Miller loves playing with these characters and putting them in different situations and saying, okay, if you have this kind of a character, what does that lead to? And oh, so yeah. if, if you have a character who says truth, justice, the American way, well, how far does that go? You know, how loyal does he stay despite everything? And I think that's what Frank was trying to explore. But this is our first hint of, 
Oh, shit. We got Superman coming in this book. Yeah. Because it's the only and... hint of Superman in this book right now. Is are, are these two panels where we see the Superman's crest. Which is all you need. Because as a reader, you're like, oh, I cannot wait to see. Because you know they're eventually going to come face to face. And you can't wait for it. It is building so much anticipation in the reader at that point. Absolutely. And so you get the you get the the sort of jumping back and forth between uh, Batman and Robin in the Batmobile, and Batman is just utterly bleeding out. And of course, you've got the mutant leader who is a criminal uh, and is in charge of basically like this little domestic terror organization of this gang, and yet they're interviewing from the news and just letting him just go off. And say just these terrible, awful things. And only till the very end do they say, the rest of the mutant leader statement is unfit for broadcast. Only like, oh, oh, and the rest of it was? Yeah. I mean, it's then like the first moment to write this free speech and everything. But it's just like, of course, when they bring up the uh, Captain Yendel, you kn- and especially his... Chosen words towards women when he's in the dump, you know where the mutant's mindset was, and you can kind of infer what he said in reference to her. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And then, of course, this is also where we get a few panels that shows Walper thinking that, wouldn't it be great if we got the Joker on a talk show? And it's just like, oh, seriously. And Joker is just playing this to the hilt. Because you know he is, he knows what he's doing. Because he's woken up. Because when he says darling in book one, it's like, he's back, baby. And now he's just playing the game. He knows, he knows what kind of person Walper is, and he's, and he's working that to get what he wants. Which we'll find out in the next book. You could say he's playing Wolper like a harp from hell. <laughs> sure, go ahead. It's an anniversary. You're allowed. Go ahead. Oh come on! I mean, it's like like I I I, I always get crapped up because I have my mixed opinions on Batman Returns. I finally make a justifiable reference, and I get I get a sigh. I see how it is. Yeah, I you just, wonder why I, I was Batman not... forever. Hey, I'll make the admission right here. I walked out enjoying Batman Forever in the theater more than I did Batman Returns. I will admit that. It wasn't until Batman and Robin that I went, that was a piece of crap. But we digress. (laughs) And so, Carrie Kelly is brought back, like his set um, Batman's arm is brought back to the cave, despite the pleas of Alfred, saying that Bruce is delirious at this point. And once they reach back to the cave, Bruce um, takes off the Batman costume and goes to the deep, darkest abyss of the cave to meet his friend and to find its inner strength once more. Now, okay, here's my question for you. Is there really a bat there, or is this just another level of Bruce's psychosis? I, it's probably the latter. I think so too. I think this is him hallucinating me and, and and there's nothing really there. This is him I think this is him finding the bat. You know, metaphorically, psychologically speaking. 
Like, he has been busted, he has been broken, and he must be reborn. Like, he's going through another rebirth as Batman at this point. Yes. Yeah, because this is also the point in the book where we lose the blue and gray. And that's another thing I always forget in this book is how long he stays in that blue and gray costume before he dons the the black and gray with the fat, with what I like to call the fat bat on his chest. Oh yeah, because it's something that even like I'm pretty sure Grant Morrison pointed out on Fat Man on Batman saying that there was a change of. Batman's costumes as he's going through a representation of all the different eras and different personality traits of Bat of of himself through the different costumes of the story. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it it's it's metaphor or it's imagery. It's this imagery that says this is a new Batman. This ain't your grandpa's Batman. He ain't wearing the blue and gray. He's wearing the black with the fat bat. He has seen the crazy bat in his brain, and he is reborn, and he is ready to kick ass and take names. Oh, yeah. But at the same time, it is we are give, we're treated to three stories that give weight to the fact of how Batman's reemergence in Gotham City has really driven the city's, I guess, mentally unstable to go really over the edge, including... Arnold Crimp, who believes um, there is a mean, there is a reverse uh, words and a message in the stairway to heaven as he goes into a X-ray theater and starts shooting up the place. Yep, and then we get the next one where well, what's this guy's name? Uh, Iron Man Vasquez. Yeah, and he's just he's just surrounded by dead bodies, eating his Snickers bar. You know, Broken Nose Valquez, what was that, B- Biggers, I mean, it's just, it's just so weird because it's just this, it's just this randomness of violence, but it's also that idea of Batman causes escalation, you know, you have a guy running around in a bat costume, people come crawling out of the woodwork. I mean, we buy semi-automatics, they buy fully automatics. We wear Kevlar, and they start wearing armor. They buy armor-piercing rounds. It's that great, that great line mask. at the end of Batman Begins. Yeah, it's it it's true. It's Batman comes first, the crazies come second. You know, it's it's the it's that paradigm. You know, which makes Gotham so weird because the crazies come first, and the Batman is a response to the crazies. So yeah, it, it makes that it makes Bruce Wayne's character. A lot less proactive and more reactionary. Right. So. And then, of course, you've got all the mutants are all locked up. So you've got all the mutants in one place at Gotham Central. Gordon knows this isn't a good idea. And then, of course, we get the the somewhat uncomfortable page of Carrie Kelly hugging the naked Bruce Wayne. As he is as he yeah. has now become reborn. And we get the magic arm brace that's going to fix his broken arm the same way that that magic knee brace in Dark Knight Rises was supposed to help Bruce Wayne walk again, which we actually talked about before we started recording. Yeah, I, I mean, like, if that was, like we mentioned before we started recording, like, if it was a setup to be paid off later, like that brace helped him defeat Bane, 
I wouldn't have a problem with it. It'd be nice set up and payoff there, but it's just like, okay, it's supposed to help him walk, but yeah, but like you assume when he's back in prison, I guess he's supposed to mend himself holistically, and that's why he's able to defeat Bane later on, perhaps? I'm not too sure. If that's the case, it's not very clear to the audience. No, it's not. So Jason gets a name drop here because Alfred's basically going, seriously, you're going to bring in another Robin after what happened to Jason? And I think it's very interesting how Bruce Wayne speaks. He says, I will never forget Jason. He was a good soldier. He honored me. Well, that's a, that's a little uh, full of himself right there, isn't it? Yeah, and very detached and very unhuman-like in that regard. Yeah, and then, of course, you know, you've got now Batman and, and Carrie Kelly disguised as a mutant going out to, you know, save the day. And, you know, you, you what I love here is that you get Yindel and Gordon having, you know, this sort of their first conversation of, you know, I, I've seen your record, you know me. You know, and they kind of have their little philosophical debate about the necessity of Batman in this world. Which I didn't fully appreciate until I got older of the compromises that he made and if it's the right decision or not. Right. And and even Gordon says, well, maybe you will. Like the idea that, yeah, you're all you're all idealistic and high and mighty. Wait till you have my job. It might give you a different perspective, and then yeah, of course, which is uh, which is also kind of echoed again in Dark Knight Rises when um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character condemns Gordon for a decision after hiding the evidence against Harvey Dent, and he says, "Like I hope to, I hope in one time you not you'll have a friend like I did to plunge your hand into the filth of making those morally morally gray area decisions." Right, because then you see Gordon and Batman teaming up to turn on the bat signal, and then Gordon basically makes it possible for the mutant leader to escape his cell, but then, of course, it's all a setup, because now Batman is going to dictate the terms of his, of his round two with the mutant leader. And then this is where Batman learns, well, let me fight smarter, not harder. And so I just, and once again, you know, things I didn't quite appreciate when I got older. The idea that let's put him in a mud pit and then let's make sure that, you know, you cut him, you know, give him a head wound because, man, head wounds bleed like a mother. So that he's got mud in his eye and he's got blood in his eye. It's like, okay, I can't take you one-on-one in a fair fight, so let's not fight fair. And, I, and, that's, the, and that's the awesome thing is that people don't think really about Batman. He'll cheat because it's not about fighting fair. It's about winning. Oh, yeah, especially with the, the big fight that we have at the end of the book – if he went in as a fair fight, he would not win. He needed all the tricks in the book in order to, in the hopes to try to win that battle. And he does the same thing here. And I love the moment when he, of course, we have the famous line, like, 
this isn't a mud hole. It's an operating table, and I'm the surgeon. But I think my favorite part is when he um, makes the left arm useless. And he says, but no force, no force on earth can help him move his left arm now. Literally making him, it is a one-armed fight on the mutant's behalf, mutant leader's behalf trying to stop Batman. Well, and then, of course, he gets into the wrestling, and then it's just like, break this leg and snap this leg. And, and, and once again, he's fighting smart. It's like, well, I'm not going to try to go at him. I'm going to do some of my targeted martial arts where it's like, deaden this nerve, snap this leg. You know, I'm going to break you down and humiliate you in front of your gang because this is a pack mentality. It's all about the alpha male. And I am going to destroy you piece by piece to show that I am the man. Right, and you even almost question the fact that, like, did he kill the mutant leader? Which he does, and we find out that the mutant leader is alive and just possibly in a coma because of all of his wounds. Another thing that's from this book that's become kind of famous is the two mutants, like uh, Rob and Don, like the ones who really stand out and have a, somewhat of a personality amongst the mutant uh, gang members. Yeah, and, and that just and once again with that with that mutant speak. And then, you know, you – and then that's when you realize that these mutants, that these it, – it, once again, because of that pack mentality, you didn't realize that the there are certain people that don't actually believe in a cause. They just shift to whoever is in charge because some of the mutants break off and create the son of Batman cult where they paint a bat on their face. And it's like, we will do what the Batman says, which, of course, doesn't look okay. good. Because, you know, that just shows more crazy that's inspired by Batman. Yeah, I mean, you could argue they mean well, but it's obviously not doing... It's doing terrible wonders for his public image. No, no, not at all. But then, of course, you know, you, you, you get the talking heads that are all, like, once again, giving all their opinions. Even though, what did Batman just do? He ended the mutant gang. Single-handedly. You know, with a little help from Gordon. And, of course, nobody appreciates it. You know, different people have their different opinions. But most people look at this like, how, well, that just isn't right. You know, where Batman very much is taking a, well, the end justifies the means approach. Which is a kind of a thing that is pretty much a, a defining part of his character. Otherwise, he would not be Batman. Otherwise, he would not work within the confines of the law. Because you look at different versions of before year one where we've had, like, the like the Secret Origins take on Batman. Where, like, he, that Bruce Wayne tried to be, wanted to be a police officer and that did not work out. Yeah, I don't like that version. I just, I just, I just like the, I just committed myself to, you know, kicking ass and taking names. <laughs> I like that. That's my, that's my Batman. Yeah, I mean, he, he left, he, like, came from Kung Fu, he walked the earth and accumulated knowledge along his way and came back to try and stop crime in the best way, po in the only way he knows possible. And the book ends with the fact that Yindel is now commissioner, Gordon is out, and Batman, Bruce Wayne is reveling in the fact that he hears a wolf howl in victory and he knows exactly how it feels. Right, which is why this book is called Dark Knight Triumphant. Like, this is the one book that ends on a victory for him. Like, he is, like he won. And 
let's be honest, it's the it's the only time in this this is the high point for him in this entire book. Oh yeah, it's all downhill from here. Even like the end of book one is bittersweet because of Harvey's psychologically broken and he cannot be saved despite the efforts of the doctors and Bruce Wayne. Oh yeah, absolutely. And the fact that you also kind of get the hint, you get the foreshadowing in that book that he just woke up the Joker. Oh, for sure. And that's a, the threat that's going to be coming down the part, the pipe that he, we, the audience, are aware of. Batman is not, so we, it's built in tension with the readers. Yes, exactly. So it's, it's, it, you and I were talking about this, you know, prepping for tonight's episode. And I almost have to agree with you that I think in some ways, because, um, I mean, Book three and book four definitely have excellent parts to them. But right now, in this kind of journey, I would almost say as a book on a whole, I think book two is the strongest overall part of Dark Knight Returns. In story, in art, in writing, I think it just this one's firing in all cylinders. Now, do you think it's because the fact that it doesn't have to worry about setting up this world, all these where the characters are that were used for, like in these new iterations of them, and so there's more time dedicated to the plot? Like that's why the second act of stories are usually the best, or like like the Dark Knight or Empire Strikes Back or The Godfather Part Two, where you are aware of these characters, so you can immediately jump in. I think so, but it's also one where I feel like Frank was taking more care with the art. Because uh, by the time you get to book four, the art's not that great at points. Uh, because he was rushing different parts. Uh, but this book felt like he was still in the point where he had the time, he took the time, the story's tight. I mean, nothing... Uh, well, not nothing. I, I would definitely say that the Batman-Superman fight at the end of Book 4. But besides that, nothing screams Dark Knight Returns uh, else than Batman versus the Mutant Leader. Like, that is... If you take away the Batman-Superman fight, the Mutant Leader is like the second most iconic part of the Dark Knight Returns. I mean... Everyone knows the mud pit line. So much so that they put it in Return of the Cape Crusaders to have Adam West deliver the line. <laughs> Let's be honest. So I, it, it's up there as in when you think Dark Knight Returns, Mutant Leader. Even so much so that when they did a adaptation of the Dark Knight Returns for Batman the Animated Series in the Legends of the Dark Knight anthology episode, what did they adapt? They adapted the Mutant Leader fight. You're right, because I honestly do believe, because I've said, I think this is my favorite book out of all four of them. Not saying that the other three are bad in any way, because we obviously enjoy the story completely overall. But if we're going to pick a section that we think is the strongest, I agree with you. I think this is the strongest. I think the commentary is on point. The characterization is there. The art is there because we have all the, the really cool splash pages. Yes, we do not have him in front of the lightning and saying, I am reborn. But... Him holding the general, like we pointed out, or seeing the mutant leader um, beat the everything crap out of Batman. And also the fact that this book proves the f goes along with so many other stories that why Batman needs Robin. 
like Lonely Place of Dying, why why there needs to be a Robin, or uh, Dark Victory, why there needs to be a Robin, because Robin is an essential part of Batman. I know a lot of people have problems with that, but I really honestly believe there's so much of Batman's ethos is based upon having Robin there, because Robin was introduced one year into his journey of being a, a crime fighter. So, And this is Frank Miller's take on the fact that why Batman always needs a Robin by his side. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's... Of course, it's almost unfair taking a section of something that, yes, it was released as four separate issues, but it was truly devised as one complete novel. It does not skip a beat if you read the graphic novel edition where the four parts aren't delineated for you. It just literally, you flip a page from one, quote, chapter into the next. Yeah, I mean, like, that's when I, I've had conversations of, like, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Like, which movie do you prefer? Like, I personally prefer Fellowship of the Ring. But, I like, there's parts of me, like, I think all of it. I, I'd say that's just one of my favorite movies. Yes, it's three movies and it's a trilogy. And you could argue the fact that, like, yeah, that's one long story. And I, I can I can dig my heels in and argue the fact, like, no, all those three are equal on their own on their own standing. Right, exactly. And, of course, you consider the fact that when Tolkien wrote the book, he wrote it as one book. The publisher yeah. divided up into three parts. So, you know, it, same thing. It's like, it's just, it's that weird thing where you want to go, yes, I like this part probably the best, but it's still a part of a whole. Oh, yeah. But um, let's start to wrap it up. Uh, final thoughts on Dark Knight Triumphant. Damn good book. You know, once again, really a really good book, great art. Um, sorry, nothing, nothing's better than this is an operating table, and I'm the surgeon. I mean, that is that is some badass. That is just badass Batman, and that's my favorite Batman. Even even with the even with the wonky shooting the mutant with the gun, and we're still going to debate to this day what ha- what did Batman do to that mutant? It still led to a really awesome scene in Batman v Superman, and I'm happy for that. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to argue because, like, like there are like so many lines that become iconic when it comes to Batman, where it simply says like, "What are you? I'm Batman," or like, "I am vengeance. I am the night. I am Batman." And there is like, "This is not a mud. This is not a mud hole. This is an operating table, and I am a surgeon." Like. Those things just become cornerstones of identifying what Batman is. And, like, if you're trying to explain to somebody what is Batman, what would you, like, how would you sum up Batman in a single line? That line would be one of them. And I absolutely adore this story overall, but specifically this section just just resonates with me so much personally. Yeah. Once again, as we continue to do this reread, because it's been weird me going back and just reading this as separate issues instead of treating this as a book on the whole. And it's given me a much different perspective on my reading of the book, only reading it one chapter at a time. So we'll just wait to see what happens when we get to Hunt the Dark Knight, book three. Oh, yes. Now, if you want people to follow you on social media and your podcast, uh, where can they find you? Oh, of course I want people to follow me. I mean, that isn't, isn't that what social media is for? Um, if they can find me on Twitter, at ScottDC27. And, of course, you can tune into my podcast, um, where my, my Tim, 
because there's so many Tims in the world. My Tim and I talk DC Entertainment with a emphasis on the movies on the Suicide Squad cast, which can be found wherever you find podcasts. Wherever you're listening to this show, you can probably find our show. And you can follow the show at Suicide Squad cast on Twitter and the entire Suicide Squad cast network. You can follow at Squadcast Media on Twitter. Nice. And I think the reason why you podcast with so many Tims is it's kind of like, it's like you could always like, call out their name and it would be fine. It's like saying, like, trying to say, like, if you accidentally say the wrong name during, you're like, oh no, this is very uncomfortable. You podcast with all Tims, you can just say the name, name out and it doesn't matter which Tim you're really referring to right there. Which, yeah, which really hard though when I'm having a conversation with someone, it's like, is it Tim Prime? Earth One Tim? I have deemed you Earth Three Tim because I really think of you as the crime syndicate. You're Owl Man. You're my Owl Man, Tim. Oh my God! Like I, I, I have black-hearted nihilism in me at every point of that, but I, I don't think I'm that devoid of of emotion. Like I just hear James Woods' voice in my head when you said that. <laughs> Very good, great Crisis on Two Earths reference. Good for you, Tim. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and if you want to follow me on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at Timothy Rooney Two. Uh, my Instagram at T Rooney Ten Twelve. The other podcast I'm part of. Part of the Real Fans for Real, Real Movies Podcast Network is the show is called Please Rewind. You can find that show and all the other shows on the network at Please Rewind at RF4RM.com. And uh, if you enjoy the show, uh, you can obviously listen to us here on, on iTunes.com or on, on SoundCloud. Leave a five star review because it helps get the word out there. And also my YouTube page, Through the Lens Productions, where I'm doing all my video work in there. And so if I, I think that's all my plugs I really need to get at because I, I spend way too much time online. Um, so I want to yeah, say, Scott, do. thank you so much for <laughs> thank you so much for taking time every night to talk about Dark Knight Returns. Always. Nothing's going to stop me from talking about Dark Knight Returns. What can I say? All right. And hope everybody's enjoyed this review. And come back next time as we keep talking about geek and pop culture. We'll talk to you soon.